Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast. This is M. Normally when I sit down for these episodes, um, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but um, it's a little bit different for this one, and that's because 13 um, is uh, you know, traditionally an unlucky number. But in the same way that all sort of occultists or spiritualists are, you know, they, they pretty much thrive on knowing more information than anybody else, um, they understand that um, 13 is actually a very magical number. And uh, if you're interested in tarot or tarot, um, the 13th card is in the major arcana, which is like, you know, the major face cards of a tarot deck. Uh, the 13th card is the death card. And even though death sounds bad, like, like I feel like if you're watching a horror movie um, and like somebody moves into a haunted house and they, uh, they you know, they, they, they start hearing scratches in the attic and bumps in the night and, and you know, some creepy fucking groundskeeper <laughs> with like, like the creepy groundskeeper from like Home Alone or the dude who like shovels sidewalks in Home Alone, like at some point he goes there's uh, beware <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the fuck they say but anyway someone warns them that like there used to be a family that lived there there was a horrible accident and like wait what are you talking about tell me more and he's like no no i can't say just don't look in the attic and he like runs away but finally the the, the new homeowner visits an occultist and they sit down and they they do a tarot reading and they flip over the death card and the person looks at them and says no, no, I can't tell you what I've seen. Take your money and go. Anyway, I'm kind of getting off the topic here. But the point is, is that the death card gets flipped in all these movies and it looks horrible. But in actual practice, the death card is actually, um, I don't know, it's kind of a good thing. It's, uh, it's the change card. It's the death of the past and the birth of the, it's a, tra- it's a transitional card. It's the death of the past and the, and um, I don't know, the birth of, or the start of the next chapter of your life, or whatever. So, um, um, given that, I knew that I actually wanted to save uh, episode 13 to talk about. Probably, you know, I, I've been an atheist skeptic my whole life. And uh, I still consider myself that. But I still wanted to tell the story about the the, the closest thing to a religious experience I've ever had um, on the 13th episode. And it's fitting, because it involves um, an ancient Chinese book of divination and philosophy called The I Ching, or the Book of Changes, and um, and given the fact that the thirteenth episode, this is the thirteenth episode. The thirteenth tarot card is the Death card, which is really a card of change. And the I Ching is all about states of transition and changes. I thought this would be a good episode to tell a story about how I found the I Ching or Book of Changes. So, um, with that said, if you uh, if you enjoy this podcast, if you'd like to subscribe to it, you can find it online. Uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. But by the way, if you're listening to this, wherever the fuck you found this, wherever the fuck you found this podcast, you know you can subscribe to it. I don't know why every podcast I listen to does the same shit, and I've been doing the same thing every episode, telling you that you can listen and subscribe on all these platforms that you already know, that you're already well aware of. But that seems like good practice. I'm supposed to be doing this. So if you needed a goddamn reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast, wherever the fuck you listen to podcasts. Um, what's less intuitive, though, if you want to help me out, is uh, share the show. You know, I've been saying the same thing every episode, but I actually like it, which is, you know, if you want to share this with everybody, if you want to post about it on Facebook or social media, you can. But uh, what might even be more effective or cooler is if you just think of one person in your life who you think would like it and share your favorite episode with them. Um, chances are, if you enjoy it, you probably have some like-minded friends. So think of one or two of those people and, uh, and send them an episode and, uh, we'll see if we can't grow this thing. Also, if you want to take five minutes and rate and review the show on whatever platform you do listen to, Apple podcasts would be cool. Um, I think our, actually, I think our most popular platform right now is Spotify and uh, I don't think you can rate and review stuff on there, but if you could go into iTunes or Apple podcasts and find this show and give it a positive review, give it five stars. If you think it deserves less, you can fuck off. I don't want any hangers ons for this show. I want fans or nothing at all. So if you think the show deserves a five star review, go ahead and give it one and say a couple nice things about it. Um, otherwise, if you want to connect with me online, you can at this is M X O X O. 
just use that handle to find me um, everywhere. Instagram, Twitter, whatever. I, I really don't like Twitter. Instagram is probably the only platform I use. Although I've been thinking about it recently, I really only post... I probably have more text per image. Um, all of my images have text on them. I don't really post um, photos of myself, which is weird. I don't really take photos of myself, and I certainly don't have them taken. And uh, it's not often that somebody grabs a photo of me. And if they do, it's not really fitting within my whole brand identity, so I don't really, I don't really share those. Um... But maybe I should. Maybe it's time to hire another photographer and get some photos taken. I forgot to turn my phone off through this, so my brother just texted me. Um, uh, my brother actually recommended this documentary to me, and I, I literally just watched it a while ago, and I was really moved by it. And um, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm feeling emo. I thought it'd be a good idea to fire up the mic and do an episode. But um, it's a documentary called Tell Me Who I Am, and it's about twin brothers. One of them has a traumatic brain injury and loses his memory. And... Uh, his other twin just basically reintroduces him to his life and, you know, says, this is our, these are our parents. This is our home. This is what our life has been like. You know, they go through photos and basically for pretty much a decade, um, his brother sort of guides him and, and reminds him of the past. And it's not until a decade into this experience that the twin who's lost his memory actually comes to understand that um, his brother's been keeping a very dark secret from him about their past and who their family is and, and things that happened to them in their childhood. And um, it's a really, really good documentary. You can find it on Netflix and it's just, you know, uh, trigger warning. It's uh, it's very graphic. It's very emotional, um, but it's so good. It's it may be a little over stylized visually, but it is beautifully shot and um, it's very yeah. I mean, you know, it's not light fair. It's uh, it's to be taken seriously. Proceed with caution. But uh, but uh, I I literally just texted him about five minutes ago that I watched it and it was very emotional. So uh, he's getting back to me about that. But uh, I'll give him a call here in a little bit. Otherwise, uh, I did want to mention one thing uh, before we get in this story, which is I had I just received a message today from uh, an old friend of mine uh, who I knew when I was living in Tucson, and uh, she reached out to me and, and let me know that uh, a mutual friend of ours, a uh, musician named Noah Gabbard, died last year. And I was really surprised to hear that. Noah was 33 years old uh, when he died. Um, he was a very talented musician. Uh, the last creative project I had when I was living in Tucson before I moved out to the Bay Area was being the drummer for his band, Bombs for the Board. And it was one of the funnest things I ever did. You know, I, I, around that time, I had just started writing and performing my own songs. And while that was kind of cool, it was it was different. There was a lot of pressure. And Noah, it, it was just super fun drumming for this sort of carefree indie rock band and yeah, Noah, he, he was just, he's probably one of the most talented dudes I've ever met in my life. And he was just super prolific. And he wrote these super catchy indie punk rock, alt rock pop songs. And, uh, and he was just great. And it was really sad to hear that he died. And uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's, it's just weird as you get older I mean, on the one hand, you, you, you know, you have friends who get married, have kids, which is strange. Um, but also you lose people and people die and they pass away. And I don't know, I, I'd be lying if I said I was, I don't know what I feel about it. Um, intellectually, I'm sad. I don't know that it's really hit me yet that this person's dead. I mean, to be fair, I hadn't really, um, you know, we didn't have that much contact after I left. I would see him when I was back in town, which wasn't very often. Um, but yeah, it's kind of surreal and strange to hear that he died. And, uh, and, uh, it's just sad. But, uh, if you want to check out Noah's music, you can find, I'm sure if you Google him, you can find his music. Um, uh, the band I drummed for was called Bombs for the Board. B-O-R-E-D, Bombs for the Board. And he was also a guitarist for a band called Hairspray Fire and Girls. And it's, uh, they would spell that all one word capitalized. I remember he also, he was doing a solo project for a while called Fork and Socket. 
And I remember he and I were, at one point, we were collaborating on doing a split EP together. I think he had to back out of it at the last minute. But, um, boy, very talented, very talented guy. And it's just, it's really sad that he's gone. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Not to get all sad or weepy. I just felt like it was fitting to, to, um, I don't know, acknowledge it and, and, and acknowledge him and encourage anyone who was interested to check out his music. So, um, yeah, rest in peace, Noah Gabbard. And, um, but anyway, yeah, now that I told that it's sort of, it feels awkward transitioning into something else, but, um, but life is for the living, I suppose. Um, so as I mentioned, I, I've been an atheist and a skeptic my whole life, or at least I should, I mean, at least as soon as I was old enough to like have my own opinion about stuff or to form my own opinions about stuff, I, I felt like I was an atheist. I was baptized Episcopalian. I, I remember going to Sunday school when I was a kid, but I don't remember that lasting very long. My sense of religiousness or religion in my family is, I think a lot of people's, it was sort of culturally inherited. It, there was just sort of a dogma. I mean, of course, but I mean, there was this, I think I come from a time period where people just sort of dogmatically accepted that religion is a good thing, even if they weren't really religious themselves, they sort of believed in belief and that going to church was just like, you know, what good people did, you know, whether or not they really got anything out of it. It was just something you did to sort of keep up appearances. Um, so I remember a little bit of Sunday school. I remember my parents going to service a little bit. And there was actually, there was a little bit of a time when we first moved to Tucson where that was something that was a little more regular. I remember going to an Episcopal church for, for, I don't know, at at least the holidays and sometimes more frequently than that. But it was really, it was really not an issue. I mean, I remember saying my prayers when I went to bed and when I brushed my teeth and all that stuff. But, um, but I, I don't know. I still think it's fair to say that I had a non-religious upbringing for the most part. But I do remember, actually, I, I mean, I was about to reiterate that I, you know, I've been an atheist skeptic my whole life, but I do actually, I just remember this. I actually tried to be religious when I was like in fourth grade. And I think in another episode, I talked about the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. And it's like, I, when I saw that movie and because it took, it, it because it took chess seriously, I wanted to start playing chess. And I know my brother, like when we saw Karate Kid, like my brother, that's, I think that's why my brother got into to Taekwondo when we were younger. <clears throat> and in the same way, I think when I was exposed to the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, I wanted to be religious. And so I remember like trying to read the Bible. And I remember even buying this like a little cross that I started wearing for like a couple weeks. But when I started reading the Bible, it was so goddamn tedious that I realized I just couldn't keep it up. And I think in very short order, I just decided I was an, an atheist. Um, but I do remember wanting to. And I, I do think it's weird. Like, I I actually, like, two years ago, maybe it was actually just a year ago, but I, I read the Bible cover to cover. You know, I always set these little... I don't know. What's it called when you educate yourself? Like an autodidact or something like that? I don't know. I'll have to Google it. But I, I always set these little like education goals for myself. Like, oh, I'm just going to start reading Russian literature. And so I create like a Russian literature curriculum for myself that I just go, oh, these are all the books I'm going to read. And I just sort of chip chip my way through them. Or like the way I listen to music. Like this year, I'm only listening to Brahms. And I even, I mean, I listen to some other stuff every once in a while, but mostly the only music I've listened to this year is Brahms. The year before that, it was Beethoven. I talked about, you know, me and my brother, we haven't really kept it up consistently, but we'll decide that every summer we're going to read one big ass book. And we did Infinite Jest. We've done War and Peace. Um, But I decided for myself that I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover in one year. And not just like the Bible, but all the apocryphal books, all the deuterocanonical books, like you know, so I found, I mean, I got like the, um, it's actually right over here. I got the, uh, the new Oxford annotated Bible and I just broke it down the pages or the, you know, book and chapters into segments. And I read the whole thing in a year. And when people, when I would mention that to people, they would say like, well, what, what's your, what, what are you taking away from it? And in one word, I would just say tedious. <laughs> the Bible is fucking tedious. And if you, like, if you only kept one book of the Bible, you should keep Genesis. 
if you had to keep something else, maybe the Gospels, not even the whole New Testament, just like the the canonical Gospels. But outside of that, the it is fucking slim pickings in terms of entertaining reading. And uh, I, I it just when you actually sit down to read the Bible cover to cover, you just think, dude, people who advocate for the Bible as this super important book must have never fucking read it because it is so goddamn tedious. <clears throat> and I'm probably going to burn in hell for saying that, but um, that's this podcaster's experience, is that the Bible is fucking tedious. Um, but Genesis is actually great. If you only read one book of the Bible, read Genesis. Um, but why was I saying that? Oh yeah, I've been an atheist and skeptic my whole life. And even though I would have said I was an atheist, probably as early as like 11 or 12, um, I probably still would have entertained things like ghosts or some sort of occult or spirituality or things like aliens. And not because I had ever really thought about it, but I think in the same way, like when you just are in a culture where those things are sort of accepted, you don't really think about them until somebody poses the question to you. You know, you just sort of I don't know, take it as true. And there's something actually kind of alluring about, even though even though you may not believe in religion because you're, you consider yourself sort of rebellious or, do you know what I mean? Like, because most people, at least at that time, are religious, you, you try to be sort of, you know, because you're sort of a counterculturalist or contrarian, like, you decide you're an atheist. But there's also something kind of cool and in, in countercultural about the occult or spirituality, right? It's sort of... Um. Yeah, I don't know. It's mystical. It's it's mysterious, but it's also. I don't know. I like. I think it's why most people get into conspiracy theories, which it's a way for them to express that they know more than you. Which is, you start saying, "Oh, well, that didn't happen," and they go, "Well, if you actually look at the documents, if you look at the, if you look at the, um, uh, oh, I love when I what what, what the fuck is it called redacted. If you actually look at the redacted documents from uh, the private." Uh, Senate hearings regarding uh, the assassination, uh, and you just go, okay, 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 yeah, this guy spent way too much time on this thing. But it's really their way of just demonstrating that they know more about something than you do. And it's like, people do that. I mean, even atheists do this with religion, where you go, I don't know, I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And then they start just citing all these Bible verses to be like, even though I'm an atheist, I've read the Bible way more closely than you have. And you go, okay, yeah, 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 I get it. <clears throat> you find this in politics now. You know, if you actually look back at the uh, um, Allen versus State of California from 1984, you'll find that uh, that ruling is actually unconstitutional. And you're like, okay, all right. All right, smarty pants. Um, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that even though I was an atheist, I probably would have believed in some sort of spirituality. But all of that completely fucking disappeared for me when I was like... You know, I talk about languishing at a junior college when I was like 18, 17, 18, 19, 20. I don't know, man. It was, a, it was a fucking while. But I remember I took an astronomy class and the first day I sat down um, for lecture, uh, the teacher put these, he had like this PowerPoint presentation and he put it on and it had these Carl Sagan quotes. And Carl Sagan was this, um, I mean, he was, first he was an astronomer. But for the public, he was mostly known as a popular author, popular science author, and also as the host of Cosmos, which was this miniseries. They actually remade it with Neil deGrasse Tyson, so maybe you've seen that. But uh, the original series, Cosmos, was, I think, written by him too, but hosted by him. And it was just this sort of survey of astronomy and, and, um, and other sort of scientific topics. And, and uh, so he, and, and, but Carl Sagan was also known as, um, I don't know, a debunker? I don't know. Part of his mission as a popular science educator was attacking pseudoscience. And um, there were these quotes from a, a, a fucking great book of his called The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. I eventually read it, but these quotes were, and I don't remember what they were exactly, but you know, they were basically just taking aim at like ghosts or the supernatural or spirituality. And the minute I read those quotes, I was like, all of that was gone. I was just like, oh, I don't believe any of that shit. And it was like, it was like he, it was like those quotes like 
shine or shone, what's the word? They shined a light on an area of my thinking that I had never really explored before. And it didn't take any convincing. I mean, so in that way, like maybe it was, it was his own sort of dogmatism, but without even thinking about it, I just sort of read these quotes. I was like, Oh, I don't believe any of that shit anymore. And it really began this whole period of my life where I was super into, I don't know, sort of exploring. Well, one, I read a shit ton of popular science books. I mean, I read a ton of Carl Sagan. Um, I mean, I just read just a shit ton of popular science books. And uh, I really loved that astronomy class. I don't know what kind of grade I got in it, but I, I mean, that was like a really big, important time for me. And even Cosmos, like I love Cosmos. I, st- I think I tried watching the new one with Neil deGrasse Tyson and I just couldn't get through it. But, um, but uh, if you can, if you can hunt down the, the Carl Sagan one, I used to have this huge like DVD box set of it. Um, but if you can find the original Cosmos, it's some of the graphics or whatever are a little dated, but overall it's, it, I think it holds up pretty well, but that was very influential on me. And it began this whole period of my life where I was really into skepticism and humanism. And I used to listen to this old podcast. This was, I mean, this was way before podcast even really hit like w- with, with like popular culture and people like most people were not listening to podcasts. It was this sort of niche thing, but I listened to this podcast called point of inquiry. It was hosted by this dude, DJ Grothy, <clears throat> who's now friends with me on Facebook. But, um, I remember he came and gave this talk at the, you know, Pima, county library or something in tucson arizona and i remember i filmed it for him and edited edited this talk that he gave and like put it online for him or whatever and uh and i remember there was this huge like not like eight it was like this sort of religion versus science convention thing and they had posted these hours and hours of video online and i had like edited them down into these videos and like posted them on my own channel at the time. And, and I think I completely forgot about them. but then like 10 years later i went back and found them again and they had like hundreds of thousands of views each <clears throat> for all I know, it could still be the most popular thing I've ever done that I just haven't even thought about. And I think I actually took them down at one point, which is kind of silly. But, um, but the point is, is I, and, and you know, I remember like Richard Dawkins was like the shit around that time. And Christopher Hitchens was the shit around that time. And, um, yeah, I was really into all that stuff. And at the same time, and actually I'm kind of going into a completely different fucking story here, I guess. But around that whole time, I was spending a lot of time with religions and I was really interested in cults. And I know Scientology has sort of had a renaissance with the uh, the Going Clear HBO documentary and all that shit. But now, and since South Park, like Scientology, people make fun of it. But like when I was really sort of looking into it and learning about it, it was this super spooky fucking thing. You know, it was just around the time that Tom Cruise was starting to talk about it and he was sort of getting skewered for it. But Scientology was this sort of very intimidating you know, um, entity that you couldn't talk shit about. And if you did, they would come after you with lawyers and stuff. And I know they showed the video of now of them, like you know, harassing and bullying people. And, but all the story, like people were first leaving the cult and talking about, um, what do they call it? You know, when they have you disconnect from your family and stuff. And there was this dude who had this website called Xenu TV. And he had all these fucking hard hitting interviews and documentary things about going after Scientology. And it was just fascinating. Um, I spent a lot of time with the Mormons and we'll we'll probably go into that another time. Like maybe one episode I'll, I'll tell you about the six months I went to church with the Mormons for three hours every Sunday and even went like what they call contacting with them. And, um, you know, it wasn't like subterfuge. I mean, I was very honest with them and told them I would never join their church and that I didn't believe in it. But, um, but it was still an interesting time in my life. Um, anyway, all this just to say that your boy is skeptical and he's not a spiritualist and he's not religious. And, but nonetheless, I did have one experience in my life, uh, really a whole chapter of my life, honestly, that I can't, I'm not saying I can't explain it rationally. And I'm not saying there's not a rational, um, explanation for it. But at the time that it happened, it was incredibly scary for me. And I really thought I was losing my goddamn mind. Um, and so, uh, I just want to tell you uh, about that story. So, uh, I have to be fair and say when this happened, I don't know that I was in my, um, I don't know if I was in the best state of mind or the most stable state of mind because, you know, they always say like when, when you, when someone joins a cult or when someone like converts to a new religion, it's when they're super vulnerable. Like they've just lost somebody. They've had some great loss and like the Jehovah's witnesses or the Mormons knock on their door and you know, the cult or whatever is offering them companionship or comfort at a time when they really need it. Like, uh, Midsummer, 
Midsummer, Midsummer, you know, the Ari Aster horror movie that came out a couple years ago. That's kind of what it's all about. You know, you sort of catch people when they're vulnerable and you you love bomb them. You know, you give them something that they're sorely lacking in their life. And um, and that's the only way they could swallow what is otherwise, like, to a rational person, fucking crazy. Um, so I had just turned 30. I had just ended a relationship with somebody that I was only seeing for, like, six or seven months. But it was pretty intense, meaning, you know, we started dating and very quickly we were inseparable. I mean, I would say after like our second or third date, we were pretty much together all the time. And uh, I really cared about this person. And and it was a relationship I grew from a lot. And even though I was the one who ended the relationship, it kind of fucked me up for like a year afterwards. And I've never really been broken up with, but I still... I don't know. I spent the next year kind of, I don't know, almost feeling like I had been broken up with, even though I was the one that ended it. And um, until that time, I hadn't been drinking. Like, I didn't drink for like three years. I was still like smoking a lot of pot, but I hadn't been drinking for three years. And within a couple months of ending that relationship, I started drinking again. And it was mostly because um, I was like, I mean, I did a lot of dating in that time. I did a lot of dating for that one year. And a lot of it was like me going to bars and like meeting people. And I think part of me being comfortable was like drinking, you know, and not being the dude who wasn't drinking and also just to feel more confident. But I was also sort of self self soothing too, I think. And, you know, I think I talked about this on another episode and part of me feels like I'm apologizing, but like my drinking was never, my drinking was never really depraved, you know? Um, I wasn't ever like a day drinker, you know, I just, I just drank to get drunk every day. (laughs) And, um, and, uh, yeah. And I was also smoking pot every day. So just keep that in mind as you're listening. Not because I think it, not because I think that it, um, discounts what I'm about to tell you. I just think it's, you know, I just, I just want to be honest about, you know, uh, what was happening around the time that this, uh, this story happened. So, I was spending a lot of my days just sort of walking around Berkeley. I mean, I would walk miles a day. And around uh, the campus of UC Berkeley, there was this bookstore. Um, There's a very famous one that I would go to as well called Moe's. That's not what I'm talking about. I won't tell you where this one is, but it's a sort of smaller used bookstore that, you know, you could walk by it and never fucking see it. And I used to walk by it and I had never fucking gone in there. But about maybe half a dozen times I had walked by it and there was this copy of uh, The Odyssey, of Homer's The Odyssey, this paperback copy that was just sort of in the window. And it was just winking at me. Like I had walked by it a couple of times and went, ooh, that's kind of interesting. And I've read The Odyssey, but there was something about this, I don't know, there was something about this cover that was just sort of winking at me. And around that time in my life, I felt like I was... I felt like I was on the cusp of this, like, creative awakening. I don't know how to describe it, but it was like that scene in um, West Side Story. Like, I forget the fucking character's name, but, like, the lead in West Side Story, he has that song where he's like, um, uh, something's coming, I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. You know, he's like, I don't know. He's just basically saying that something big is coming in his life. He feels this onset of some important meeting or encounter and it sounds fucking crazy but that's how I felt in my life and I don't know if it was in therapy I don't know if it was because I was drinking I don't know what it was but I literally started to feel like all these chapters of my life kind of coming together I don't know my, my life started like life for me until like my late 20s or like even 30 years old was very fucking hard and I'm not saying it was um exceptional to me i think it's i think it's actually very common uh for young males to go through this type of experience and not not everyone does but i think a lot do but there's this palpable sense at the end of your 20s where you you, something calms down in you and i think part of it is actually the biology of your brain like your brain stops developing but you literally feel something settle inside of you and it doesn't mean that all your problems are solved but something some variable that has been tumultuous or I don't, I don't fucking know the word for it, but something stops, something calms down. 
and I feel like I was just in the throes of that. And I had all these separate interests in my life, and I was just waiting for something to come together to sort of tie everything together or, or something like that. But so I was sort of anticipating this encounter and there was something about that copy of the Odyssey that seemed to be a part of that. And um, look, I'm not pretending it makes sense. All I can do is describe what my empirical experience was. So I see this copy and I, one day I'm walking by and I decide I'm going to go in there. So I grab this copy of the Odyssey and I start grabbing some other books too. You know, the fiction and literature section is right there. And I was also like around that time revisiting books I had read in my childhood. And I don't know, I was seeing things with new eyes, for lack of a better phrase. And um, so I grab, I don't remember, I grab a few books. I don't remember what they all were. I, know, I think one of them was Dubliners by James Joyce. But after about 10 minutes or so, I have these books in my hands. And I think, um, and I think, this this isn't right. You know, this is not like, like, have you ever gone shopping or just gone to the mall with no intention? Then all of a sudden you have like, I don't know, you have a couple things in your hands and you just go, fuck man, I don't want to buy this stuff. I'm just spending money because I'm in here now and I feel like I have to buy something. Um, and I had that feeling and sometimes we just fucking give in and just get our shit and go home and kind of like regret what we bought. But I, I sort of put my foot down and I said, this is is not what I'm here for. And so I literally put everything back and then I have this moment And I'm actually glad I brought up the Mormon thing because it kind of goes back to that in a way. But when I was hanging out with the Mormons, and I again, I was always honest with them, like, I'm not joining your church. I don't believe any of this stuff. I just think it's interesting. And as long as you're willing to keep teaching me and as long as you're willing to keep sort of letting me tag along, I'd like, I'd like to. And uh, at the, they have these sort of seven prepared lessons. And they're fully convinced that by the end of these seven lessons, which are like an hour long each, you're going to convert to Mormonism. But at the end of each one, they not only invite you to convert if you're already ready, but they also invite you to sort of get on your knees and pray with them. And they even would, you know, they would encourage me to do this between lessons where they would say, you know, if you, if you get down on your knees and you genuinely pray and ask from the depth of your being for a sign from God that he will give you one. And even at the time, I would try to do that. To the extent that I felt like it was possible. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how else to say it, except I, I was fully convinced it wouldn't work. But I also wanted to take them at their word. And I kind of wanted to be fair. Like, if I was going to ask them to be like spending this kind of time with me, I didn't just want to sit there with my arms folded. I wanted to take them seriously, like both for them, but also for myself. Like if it's like, it would be one thing if they said that to me and I really tried it and it worked. Then, like, the responsibility would be on me. Does that make sense? Because if it really worked, then I would have to sort of wrestle with that. Like, oh, shit, like, I really felt something. And can I really deny that? You know, it was kind of like, I, I don't know, I wanted to be fair or whatever. And, of course, every time I did that, nothing fucking happened. <sighs> but I'm in the bookstore and I and I have this moment where I you know, I put all the books back. I'm standing, I'm facing the, the wall of this sort of fiction and literature section. You know, this, I'm, I'm facing this bookcase and I just, it sounds fucking silly, but <laughs> I literally like put my hands down at my side, like my palms are sort of facing outward and I'm not making a big show of this. There's like fucking nobody in the store. Nobody can see me, but I just close my eyes and I remember as much as I could, you know, as earnestly as I could, I just, from the, from the depths of myself, I just say to the cosmos or whatever, you know, whatever force, just anybody who can hear me, you know, whatever the cosmic force is, I think I'm speaking to, I just say something like, show me what you want me to see, show me what I'm here for. And I just start walking. I, I mean, I open my eyes. <laughs> and I start walking through the bookstore. And, you know, I, I, I felt like I was... I felt like I was being pulled by something. And I don't mean like I felt hands on me and I felt like I was being pushed and I was possessed. But I, I literally just kind of like surrendered in a way that I can't really fully describe. But I started walking... 
and I'm just looking. I'm. It's. It's almost like I'm just surrendering my impulses. You know, I don't have a will. I don't have a desire for anything. I'm just sort of surrendering, and I just start moving. And I'm walking, and I'm walking past like. I know there's, I see philosophy, I see history. And I like, I see all these other classics, like the Aeneid, the Iliad. I see all these other classics sort of jump out on me and I, and I don't stop to look at them. I just sort of note them. And oh, there's the Shakespeare section. And I see this super thick book on Macbeth, which is like my favorite play. And I remember I come and there's this little staircase that sort of winds, that sort of 180s, really, really tight, tiny staircase. And I see these French books and I see Camus, the person I read, I spent you know a fair amount of time reading younger when I was younger, and um, I just sort of like take a couple steps up, and the staircase sort of winds around. It's like a little one eighty, and when you get to the top of the staircase, on the right hand side, there's a huge bookcase that goes down the entire length of the bookstore, and on the left is up against the banister, which sort of also runs the length of the bookstore. Is a sort of hip height, hip high, hip height um, bookshelf with books below it, and there's also books running across the top of it. And the minute I hit the top of the landing, my eyes rest on this random book about 10 feet in front of me on the top of this um, this sort of smaller bookcase overlooking the bookstore. And it's this yellow spine. And the minute my eyes hit it, I just think, that's what I'm here for. And I walk over to it, and I read the spine, and it says, I Ching, or Book of Changes, the Wilhelm Baines translation. And I knew what the I Ching was. I had actually owned a copy of this exact same edition, or whatever you want to call it, this translation, this pressing of the I Ching years ago, when I was like, I think I was like 15. I had read this book, um, The Tao of Pooh. And that's poo is in Winnie the Pooh, not poo-poo. And it sounds crazy, but like I read this book, The Tao of Pooh, and it has, there's a companion book called The Day of Piglet. Um, and I read these books, and I just have this palpable memory of, after reading them, feeling incredibly calm. I, I literally had this memory of, I was in, I was like taking a, I was in, I was like 15 years old. I remember being on Broadway and um, 22nd. In Tucson, Arizona, there was like a big shopping center with Main Street Billiards where we used to hang out. But I'm like making this U-turn right before the intersection. And I remember feeling so calm and kind of like happy. And I was attributing it to this book that I had read. There was something about the philosophy. It sort of articulates Taoism and all that sort of stuff. But I remember it had like a real a real um, influence on me at the time. And so... And I remember just sort of sitting there in my car thinking like, wow, I'm really happy. There's something about this book that's like really touched me or whatever. And then, then the memory sort of fades and I go back to my life. But I do know around that time I had this sort of passing interest in Taoism. And part of when reading about Taoism is you learn about these Chinese classics, you know, and one of them is the I Ching or Book of Changes. And, and I remember buying a copy and, and also I think it was reinforced because like my brother was listening to a lot of hip hop around the time and we were listening to Dead Prez, which was this sort of like radical militant um, hip hop group. And in one of their songs, they mentioned the I Ching. They call it the I Ching. And dude, oh fuck, dude, I forget this story, but two things. I remember one time being in an airport. I, I don't even fucking know how old I was or what the fuck was going on, but it may have been around the same time. And I think I was actually flying to my half-brother's wedding. But I remember sitting in a waiting area of the airport, kind of having food. And I, I, I think my brother was there. I don't fucking know who else I was sitting with. But I, I remember bringing up the I Ching. And I say something like, have you guys ever heard of this book called the I Ching? And I remember trying to articulate what I sort of thought it was at the time. And this fucking lady from another table goes, um, I think you mean I Ching. And I was just like, dude, fuck this girl. She was right. But I fucking hate that about people. But that, I, I can't believe I fucking forgot about that story. But that fucking happened. <clears throat> it's funny how you have these experiences. And maybe, maybe this is like... I don't know, the cosmos sort of bookmarking these experiences for you. So they, they seem random at the time, but they're just sort of reinforcing this idea or something that you'll eventually make sense of or whatever. That's, I think that's why people feel like they have a destiny or whatever. But 
God, that's funny. I forgot about that. But I remember buying this book and not fucking understanding it. You know, I couldn't make heads or fucking tails of it. So I, I think I fucking sold it eventually. But as soon as I see this book, the I Ching, I think, oh, I had this before. And I pick it up. And what the I Ching is, it's this ancient Chinese book of divination and, and, and Chinese philosophy, um, sort of hybrid Confucianist, Taoist sort of Chinese philosophy. Um, and what it is, is it's like tarot, but the I Ching is made up of these 64 hexagrams, which are these six line pictographs or structures that are made of broken and unbroken lines um, and, and every possible permutation. And if you sort of shuffle these broken and unbroken lines, they can, you know, all the possible combinations are these 64 images. And in the same way, tarot, um, every card represents a certain life situation. And ostensibly, when you draw enough cards, it's supposed to explain, you know, essentially every possible permutation of life circumstances or situations that you can find yourself in. And it's supposed to explain to you where you are in this sort of ecosystem of symbols and what you either need to do to bring something desirable about or what you need to do to avoid, you know, some sort of consequence. And so in the same way you sort of shuffle the tarot and draw these cards, the I Ching is a book that you consult usually through Yarrow Stocks, which is a sort of more complicated system that not a lot of people use anymore. Or by rolling casting coins, as they say, you sort of throw these coins and based on how they land, you... You know, you read the numbers that you get and you construct a, a hexagram, a system of six broken or unbroken lines. But anyway, I, I grab the book, I grab the I Ching, knowing, wow, this is what I'm here for. I open up to the first hexagram, which is called the creative, and it's six unbroken lines. And I just read the commentary on each line of the hexagram, and it tells the story about a dragon beneath the earth, a dragon that shows itself, then a dragon flying above the waters, and then a dragon flying in the heavens. And then usually, I mean, the sixth line of each hexagram is usually not so great, where it says like, oh, but if the dragon flies too high, you know, something bad happens. But as I read this, it was like fireworks going off in my head. It was like It was like in that moment, and I don't want to oversell it, but it was literally like in that moment, I felt like I was being given a gift from the cosmos. There was something about that image, which is very sort of cryptic and and whatever, where I saw myself in it. It seemed like the perfect metaphor for how I had experienced my life up until that point. And when I talk about this sort of great expectation or this anticipation that I was sort of feeling, this felt like not the solution or, I don't know, the, um, the, the, the climax of it or whatever, but it felt like the key. And I'm, I'm not saying that there was an answer or anything was solved in that moment, but I literally felt like a, I, I, I literally felt like a key turning in my brain as I was reading this. And it was like, I took the book and without reading anything else, I remember I I, I walked it downstairs, I bought it and it was about a 25 minute walk home. And I remember feeling like I had a secret. I was excited. I was kind of nervous, but I knew whenever I got home and started reading this thing, it was the beginning of uh, the next chapter of my life. And I... I was certain that my life was going to change forever after this, that this was a moment that I was going to, that my life was like demarcated. There was now before the I Ching and after the I Ching and I was converted without even reading it. I just bought into it. You know, like I, I, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but it's like when I saw the movie Inception for the first time, I didn't know anything about it. I just started watching it but I fucking love Inception. And I think with any movie, you just have to buy into the conceit, right? The conceit is, well, that you can um, create, like, you know, the whole dream within a dream thing, that you can create a dream world, and you either buy into that, the metaphysics or the the mechanics of it, or you don't. It's like a magic trick. If you're going to be fooled, you just sort of buy into it, you know? 
with Inception, I was all the way in. From the word go, I was just completely immersed. I bought, I bought into it, and I was just sort of swept away by it. The I Ching was the same thing. And for someone who's been a skeptic and an atheist their whole life, and, and was having the experience that I was having, that was a phenomenally scary time for me. And I remember, I mean, I, I took it home. I began reading it. I was enthralled by the ecosystem of images. And the, you know, the way I talk about it, it sounds very straightforward, but the I Ching, like most people who pick it up, it's going to be nonsensical. And they're going to have the same experience I had when I was 15. You, you, you can't make heads or tails of it. It's not a book you can read. If you try to sit down and read the I Ching, you're going to bore yourself to tears. It's going to be more tedious than the Bible. But it is an ecosystem of symbols. And, you know, I think for, it speaks to certain people. And for people who it's sort of meant for, for lack of a better word, they see themselves in it. And there was something about this recurring character, this archetype in the I Ching, the superior man, the gentleman, that wasn't, it wasn't just somebody I related to. You know, there are, you know, there are times where you find a book or you hear a song or you watch a movie and you think, oh, this person understands me. Like people read fucking Catcher in the Rye or whatever. And they think, oh, uh, J.D. Salinger understands how I think, you know, here's someone who thinks the same way I do. Um, I, I feel like a broken record. Maybe I've said this on other episodes, but like this documentary, Jerry Sein or a comedian with Jerry Seinfeld, you know, he talks about comedy is just reminding people about things that they already knew were funny. I think a lot of art is that way, that sort of observational comedy, right? You just remind people of things that they already experienced and you just show it to them again with more clarity and more specificity. You give a name to something that they already sort of suspected about themselves but could never really articulate, and that's sort of the gift of creativity. It's not just creating things out of spun cloth, but taking what's already around everybody and showing it to them anew. The I Ching was not only all of that, it didn't just show me, re-show me things I already knew about myself. It fucking knew me better than I knew myself. It knew what I was, not just who I was, but who I was trying to be. You know, everybody reads, I mean, at least in Western culture, you know, Jesus is the archetype. You know, what would Jesus do? You know, Jesus is not this, I mean, it's, it's sort of irregardless whether or not he actually existed, I guess. But, you know, as a character... You know, you just aspire to Jesus and everybody falls short. But if you could, there's almost this assumption that if you could live your life like Jesus, you would be the ultimate person. Well, I wasn't, I was never in my life, I was never aspiring to be Jesus. But whoever the superior man, whoever the gentleman that was sort of the way this person and archetype was sort of articulated, I mean, first in the I Ching, I mean, later I went on to, re- to read like Confucianism and I mean, I spent three years of my life reading Chinese philosophy, like almost exclusively. So it was elaborated, but at first it was whoever this person that I was encountering in the I Ching was, was my hero, was the, the archetype of whoever I, was, I had been striving to be my whole life. And it was this incredibly scary time where, you know, I mean, I look back on, a, on it and I want to qualify it. You know, I want to sort of apologize for it. But, but literally at the time, I felt like I had a magic book that I could interact with and could interact with me that not only understood me better than I knew myself, but understood what I was trying to be in my life and was helping me make sense of not only the the future that I was trying to build for myself, but the past that I had experienced. And it was like all of a sudden these these sort of disparate interests in my life, whether it was music or movies or literature or psychology or therapy or whatever the fuck it was, anything that had ever had any meaning to me in my life, all my relationships, every formative thing that had ever happened to me seemed to sort of come together in one image. And it was sort of held together on this thread of Chinese philosophy and this system of thinking that was sort of articulated in the I Ching. And for, I mean, there would be moments where I would be interacting with the I Ching where I would feel panicked. I would have these 
you know, it would be like a fire in my gut. And I, I don't know if you've ever had like a bad paranoid experience on, on weed or something where you feel like you fucking broken your brain and you think, oh my God, I've had this huge insight into the reality of the world and I just can't, I just don't know how I'm going to go back to my life knowing what I know now. And of course you go to bed and you wake up and you're fucking back to business as usual. But there would be moments with the I Ching or with other books of Chinese philosophy where I was so swept up by what the, 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 the sort of you know consciousness-raising experiences I would have where I would really feel like my... I would literally feel my consciousness sort of expanding to encompass something I had never really considered before. I remember I would like get up sometimes and look in the mirror and in the same way like someone's having a bad trip. You know, it's okay, man. It's all right. It's okay. You're not losing your mind. You know, it's all going to be okay. I would have those sorts of moments. And I remember going into therapy and sometimes I would, I would like, I mean, I feel myself kind of getting emotional like talking about it now, but like, I would like beg my therapist to tell me if I was going crazy. Like, does this sound crazy to you? Like, is this like, am I embarrassing myself? Like, what the fuck is going on? And if I haven't already scared the shit out of you yet and you're fucking laughing at me, (laughs) the thing that I kept coming back to in therapy which was the only, the only like real tangible thing. And it's not going to sound that tangible, but the only thing in my life that I could equate it to that, that seemed to, that I could point to that, that seemed to relate at all to what I was experiencing was the movie, the never ending story. And I kept, and if you've never seen the never ending story, you fucking should pause this and and see it or else you're not, I mean, I'm going to blow through this very quickly. But the movie of the ne- the movie of the never ending story, not the book itself, which I tried to read and is not very good. But the movie, one of the rare times where a movie is better than the book, and the movie is not perfect, but it is it's still a pretty good movie and very important movie from my childhood that I watched dozens of times and never felt like I understood until I had this experience with the I Ching. But the story uh, of the never ending story of the movie is this uh, young boy named Bastion. And there's a conceit at the beginning of the film that his mother has died and he lives with his father. And Bastion's a boy who uh, loves books. He lives through books. He disappears into books. Um, he's an avid reader. And he's, you know, it's, it's sort of cliche the way he's treated in the movie. He's, you know, he's bullied by the kids at school and nobody understands him and he's kind of a loner. And there's this great moment where his, at the beginning... You know, his father, his well-intentioned father, he's not a bad guy. He's not like these other, you know, way that uh, sort of uh, fathers are portrayed in movies. He, he's, he's, he means this in, you know, he's trying to help Bastion when he says, you know, I need you to keep your feet on the ground. You know, get your head out of the clouds. Keep your feet on the ground. Um, that's sort of the, that's what Bastion's wrestling with. And he has his experience. He's being bullied. He runs into a bookstore, a strange bookstore, and he encounters a man who's reading a book. And uh, the man says, oh, this book's not for you. This book is dangerous. When you read your books, they're safe. But when you read this book, it's dangerous. It's not for kids. It's not meant for you. And of course, the minute the bookkeeper turns his back, Bastion steals the book, runs to school and sort of hides away in the attic and opens this book and he starts reading of it. And of course, there's this sort of, you know, the bookkeeper sort of sees that he stole, he's stolen the book and sort of smiles. It's almost like, you know, he understands that the boy is starting this journey with the book or whatever. But, you know, the boy starts reading the book and as he reads it, spoiler alert, he begins to realize that he's a part of the story. And he realize, he begins to not only see himself in the book, the book begins to see itself in him. And there becomes this sort of mutually this this sort of mutually beneficial relationship where the fantastical ecosystem of the book depends on Bastion believing in it. And um anyway. <laughs> I don't know. As I as I as I talk about this, I I don't know. I always shut down because it's um you know, I start hearing myself talking about this and after a while I just, you know, that voice in my head that wants me to shut up um or talk myself out of it starts to 
I literally feel my brain breaking down. Dude, and it actually, it's like in The NeverEnding Story, the thing that's plaguing the world in The Nothing, or in, in, uh, in The NeverEnding Story is the nothing. It's this encroaching eraser, this thing that sweeps away this world and is, it sort of threatens to destroy it. And the only thing that can stop the nothing is a human child, Bastion, sort of believing in this world. And that's like literally like I feel that in my brain when I talk about this. There's this other force that's talking me out of this. And I don't know if it's reason. I don't know what it is, but it's like Bastion's father telling him to keep your feet on the ground. And it's not evil. It just is. It's whatever the opposite of this, I don't know, believing is. And whether it's real or not, whether it's true or not, that's what I felt like I was sort of locked into for years. And I remember talking in therapy saying, am I fucking going crazy? Why does this mean so much to me? Why does this, one, for someone who's been an atheist and a skeptic their whole life, why does this fucking magic book feel like it has so much goddamn power over me? Why does it feel real? When I know it can't be. You know, this thing didn't fucking... didn't fall out of the fucking sky. This book was printed in a fucking factory. There's thousands of them. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I owned a copy of this book when I was 15. This is just another fucking copy of this book that I once opened and didn't fucking make sense to me. And now it feels like the key to my fucking future. I feel like when I found that book, I had found my fucking destiny. I felt like it was meant for me. Not only that it was meant for me, I was led to it. I felt like this book was daring me to take it seriously. And it was challenging me. And I thought I was, I thought I had fucking lost my rocker. I knew I was vulnerable. You know, I was in a vulnerable time in my life and I thought, is this how it works? Is this how people get fucking brainwashed? <clears throat> you know, was this like the fucking lonely person on the sidewalk who gets invited into a Scientology center and take a personality test and get put on the e-meter? And this was just some sort of structure in my life I was create, I, that I needed for some sort of other psychological reasons, you know? And that if I took this book seriously, if I gave my life over to it, that I would look up 10 years later and think, wow, I'm fucking nuts. You know, like, oh, I got baptized into this fucking cult religion and now I'm in fucking French Guyana with Jim Jones and he's asking me to drink, drink the Kool-Aid and now I realize, oh, fuck, I should have just gotten some therapy instead of joining this fucking cult. <sighs> this was the sort of battle that I was sort of locked in with the I Ching for like three years. <laughs> and actually, that's not the scary, that's not the scary part. The scare, I think the scariest thing for me today about the I Ching, and I almost don't want to say this, but at that time, it showed me something. I had a, I, I, I mean, it's the only thing I've really thought about creatively since then. I had a moment of inspiration, and it came together very quickly. And I don't know how to talk about it, It basically <laughs> inspired me to create something that I've spent the last five years avoiding and not being able to bring myself to create. And I don't want to talk about it beyond that, but even this podcast is a faint-hearted, half-ass attempt to take a step toward that. And... even though I don't really consult the I Ching as much, you know, in in some ways I feel like that. And it's kind of sad, actually. I feel like that window on the magic of that time period has sort of closed. The worst part is I had this moment of inspiration where I felt like the I Ching was daring me to create something that felt like my destiny. And I was so scared about the experience I was having that that I kept shying away and putting it off. And I, and I, and honestly, I never did it. I never really did it. I never really dedicated to it. 
in the last five years, I feel like I've seen, like there's this, there's like some Christians talk about this. Like if you don't heed God's call, he finds another way to do his work. And I've seen that inspiration that I had. And maybe it's just, I'm beating myself up about it, but I've seen it broke. That, that image I had has been broken into a thousand pieces and I see it distributed in all sorts of things. And every, all the movies I watch, all whatever I, it's like, even Tolstoy talks about this in War and Peace. Like there's a great work being accomplished all the time. And everybody can't be, doesn't really understand how, but they're a part of this work that's being accomplished. And if you don't heed the call, the work will be done without you. And I, and it sounds stupid to say, but there's a part of me that feels like because I heard that call and shied away from it, I never really committed to it. I almost feel like the the tragedy of my life is seeing it carried out everywhere else. I mean, the I Ching even talks about this. There are cycles of life, you know, and every you know, every X number of years, the door opens and you either walk through it or you don't. And if you miss it, you have to wait. <laughs> and the crazy part is, I, I, it sounds stupid, but I do feel like I missed, I missed my call. I missed, the I Ching was sort of daring me to take it seriously and follow it somewhere that, I don't know. Maybe my life could have been different. And I know I'm being cryptic. I'm not really talking about it clearly, but um, it's just too vulnerable, honestly. And maybe we'll talk about it more at another time. But um, Anyway, that's the spookiest thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm not saying that it's not rational. You know, I, I, and I don't just think I'm apologizing. I don't just think I'm qualifying everything I've said. I think whatever happened to me, whatever the experience was, was, it was, I mean, it was real. There was no, no woo woo wonder stuff involved. I think it's all very explainable. But I, at the same time, I don't think it's entirely intuitive. Anyway. I don't know what to say. I, I'm i sort of coming to the end of this conversation, and I feel like... I'll, I'll tell you what. When I sat down to record this, I knew... You know, I know that this is an important story for me. And I, when I sat down to record this, I told myself, this, this doesn't have to be the, defini- the definitive version of the story. This is just a telling of it. And even though it's important and I wanted to sort of, I, you know, I said, there are things you're going to wish you would have said that you won't. There's things you're going to say that you wish you would have said differently. You're going to go back and hear this and there's going to be a million things about it that you want to change. But just go into this knowing that it doesn't fucking matter and it's going to be whatever it is. And this will, you know, I, there's a part of me that wants this to be the like canonical version of the story, but my guess is we're going to come back to this a thousand fucking times. And this will just be the first time I really talked about it. And I'll just fucking point people back to this conversation if they want to fucking learn more. But, but if I'm being honest, as I'm coming to the end of it, I don't feel, I don't feel satisfied. (laughs) You know, I feel, I, I, I worry that people are going to hear this and one, they're going to think I'm fucking crazy. Um, but, but dude, almost worse. And I don't know, I don't know what this sounds like, but I'm almost, what I'm more concerned about is people thinking they know, they know what I'm talking about and they won't. I think what I'm trying to clarify at the end of it for whatever the fuck it's worth is I'm not talking about some magical experience. I'm not talking about whatever UFO experience you've had or whatever, whatever ghost experience you've had. I'm talking about the I Ching sort of showing me a type of reality that is here all the time. That's not magical. That's not surreal, but that there could be a clarity of seeing the world that sort of transcends 
the world that we're trying to navigate all the time and is true clarity. You know, the, da- the in Taoism, and the tragedy is Taoism sort of, <laughs> all right, now I'm going into this whole fucking Chinese philosophy lecture, but Taoism is not very useful ultimately because it sort of degenerated into this sort of woo-woo spirituality. But the source texts of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, are wonderful. But the Tao talks about wu-wei, no unnecessary action. Anyway, fuck it, I'm going to stop. We'll, we'll talk about this another time, but I just believe that the I Ching on some level dared me to live a way that could have changed my life and for some reason I didn't fucking heed the call. But anyway, enough. There's nothing else to say about it. Thank you for listening. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever the fuck you listen to podcasts. If you want to share the podcast with somebody, please do. If you want to connect with my socials, you can at This Is M X O X O. Otherwise, thanks for listening. And ciao. For now. <laughs>